Welcome back to UAP Studies. Today, my guest is Katie Grabowski. Uh, she is in Colorado, and she's not only a MUFON investigator, she's also a superstar at MUFON because she's a star investigator, SAT team, and a leader in the Mars team as well. And she will explain what all uh, of these uh, mean and uh, how she got into it. Uh, Katie, I looked at her background and like I was just explaining to her before we started, um, holy crap, I could not believe her backstory. It was, it was that good. And she was meant to investigate UFOs. Uh, and you'll hear this shortly. So Katie, uh, thank you so much for joining us here on UAP studies. Thank you so much, Jason. I am happy to be here. Man, so I'm excited. I have a lot of questions. Like I told you, uh, I got all my highlighted uh, important ones that I need to ask. Um, and, and as always, I always start with my guests asking them how they got into uh, ufology. And your story is amazing. And I'm going to let you explain to the listeners uh, how all of this started for you. Right. Thanks, Jason. Um, Well, you know, as a young girl, I heard about sightings that my grandfather had out in Wisconsin over Lake Como in the early 1960s. Um, The rumor has it that it was studied by J. Allen Hynek, although I haven't been able to locate the case. Um, Also, during the mid-60s, when I was just, you know, two, three years old, my family and I had a sighting going from Wisconsin to our home in Illinois in Richfield of some oblong shaped crafts. But um, the real kicker was when we moved to Colorado, we had really close friends of the family that own a ranch out in Elbert County, Colorado from 1975 to 1978. And we had a lot of really high strangeness, incredible activity out there on the ranch. Um, the gentleman who owned the ranch, him and his sons, his two younger sons, lived with us during the week um, to go to a bigger school district, as um, a lot of small towns are in Elbert County. Um, and so I would hear a lot about the activities that happened on the ranch during the week. On the weekends, my older sister and I visited the ranch a handful of times, and we had some encounters of our own. Um, so like I said, um, those I was 9, 10, and 11 years old when those activities happened out on the ranch. Um, put them in the back of my mind and went about my life. Um, got married, raised five children, went to college, earned my degree, and I just kind of put it in the back of my mind. Um, wasn't even really sure if any of those things happened or what they were. Um, in ni- like 2000 and. 12, I started to revisit those kind of things because my kids were all grown up and everything. And um, turns out I bought a book. uh, I joined MUFON in 2012 and I bought a book, Hunt for the Skinwalker. All I knew about that book was it was about a ranch in Utah called the Skinwalker Ranch. I had no idea that I would be reading about uh, the ranch that I had experienced when I was a young girl. And quickly learned that Dr. Leo Sprinkle was one of the investigators of that ranch. Uh, Long story short, the whole case blew up. I um, got all the original reports and documents about the ranch. I met other people that lived in the town that had experiences, and um, I'm still investigating it to this day. So uh, it's UFO investigations for me is a very personal topic and subject because I'm seeking answers really for what happened to me. And just for clarification, Katie, uh, what was the name of the ranch? 
Well, <laughs> it's kind of known in UFO circles as the Clearview Ranch because the names of the people that own the ranch, they don't want any publicity and they still don't. I've reconnected with the youngest son on Facebook and he is still terrified by the events that happen there. So they don't want their name out, even the town. So that's why I say it's in Elbert County. Um, I know where the ranch is. I've actually talked with the people that own the ranch now. Um, but um, so I just kind of reference it now as the Elbert County Ranch. And uh, the occurrences, did you have cattle mutilations in that uh, at that time? Because it was the mid-1970s. Uh, right. Was that an occurrence there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And from 1975 to 1978, um, the amount, I mean, there were hundreds of cattle mutilations um, out in that area. I mean, other states as well. Um, when I flew out, so the sheriff there, <clears throat> um, Dr. Bill Waugh, or Sheriff Bill Waugh, the undersheriff, um, who has since passed away, but his wife and his sons live out in Florida. So I went and I flew to Florida to interview the Waz, and she pulls out this big folder filled with newspaper articles about all the cattle mutilations and that. I mean, there's probably 140 different newspaper articles, so I, she was so gracious to let me take that and copy all the articles, and um, it's just incredible the amount of not only cattle mutilations, but the strange um, helicopter sightings. Um, that were menacing to people. They just weren't seen around cattle mutilations, but these helicopters, um, they would like chase young girls. I have incredible newspaper articles that talk about these things. I've put all these witnesses into an Excel spreadsheet, and I'm in the process now of interviewing as many people that I can about their occurrences out there. Um, so yeah, not only that, uh, Bill Wall was interviewed in um, Strange Harvest that Linda Moulton Howe put together. Um, oh, yeah. so yeah, you could see him in there and, um, I'm just tracking down all these people as many as I can. I know this, you know, the 1970s were, was a long time ago, but I still think there's so much to be learned from these historical cases. Yeah. And it's still ongoing today. We still have cases happening now. So learning what happened in the past to now saying, you know, you think we would have gotten a grip or an idea as to what is causing this, um, these cattle mutilations. And I, understand that some people like to cling to the belief that it you know it's a cult that's going around just uh you know killing cows but as a global uh phenomenon it doesn't make any sense like they would have to have millions of dollars and so much time on their hands to go around the world to do this it, it that logic just doesn't uh, fit there uh yeah it's just weird and this i i do believe the ufo phenomenon is related to the cattle mutilation as far as the helicopters have you had any ideas or theories on what's with the helicopters well it's interesting um chris o'brien he's somebody i spoke with uh, a little while ago he's written some great books on cattle mutilations for anybody out there who wants to learn more about them and, and theories behind the cattle mutilation so i recommend that but um as far as the helicopters goes you know my my train of thought has gone from, was this a military, the Elbert County backs to Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, the lands went down further, kind of almost back to 
the Elbert County land where the ranch was. So I thought, was the military conducting some sort of psychological experiment on small towns? Were they menacing? Were they, you know, perpetuating all this activity to scare the living bejeebies out of people and, and study that? Um, and then I went from, you know, where the cattle mutilations um, connected to cult activity. And there's a lot of documents and things I've read that pointed to that early on, as well as was the military experimenting and taking these cattle. But none of that seems to make any sense to me. My feeling, and actually um, Sheriff Waugh, his family had uh, a big orange orb over a hill on their land. And so they're witnessing this big bright orb and up comes a, a unmarked helicopter fly off their back of their property. And so we actually had this discussion when I interviewed them and their feeling was that those helicopters were there trying to investigate the activity just as much as anybody else was. In other words, they had no idea who was mutilating the cattle um, just as much as anybody else. So I feel somehow the helicopters were out there trying to figure things out. And that's my personal feeling on it. Your, um, I want to talk about your progression through MUFON because you climbed, like there's different levels to MUFON. There's the um, field investigator, and then you can actually move up to the uh, star team, SAT team. Uh, could you explain to me what the differences are between those and what you learn when you enter those new categories? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, like I said earlier, I joined MUFON in 2012. Um, I'm very fortunate in that I was able to be in a state where we had very active people. I think that makes a difference. Um, we had really exceptional um, field investor training here in Colorado. Um, Doug Wilson, our state director, um, he is now the chief investigator for all of MUFON and does a fabulous job with training. Um, as well as Ken St. John being out here. He is um, the creator of the Mars system, and he also put together MUFON University. So I was fortunate enough, really, to be in a state with these two great mentors. Um, I came in immediately as a field investigator, and, uh, you know, the more cases you have, the more case, you know, I think I was at, like, I don't know, 50 to 60 cases. And, and Doug felt, well, I think, you know, she has enough cases under her belt that she could be on the star team. Um, and really basically star team, they tend to take more of the category three cases as probably a lot of your listeners know, MUFON categorizes the cases by category one, category two, and category three. Category, category ones are more just lights in the sky, um, category two, you're getting a little closer in, uh, maybe have some photographic or video evidence and cat threes are often, you know, ET abductions or close encounters and, and um, are more pressing, you know, happening now kind of cases. So that was um, the star team. And the sad team came about, it's kind of funny when that started because um, I knew a few people on the sat team which is the special assignment team. And it, it's a collaborative team of people that have just special um, specialties. So we have somebody who, you know, might be a pilot, um, somebody who has a good chemical lab experience, uh, photo and video forensics. So everybody on the team kind of brings their own specialty to that team. And, um, I think, though, what's important about that, there was some pushback in MUFON that, oh, 
the SAT team's getting all the really important special cases and they're hogging all the good cases. And, and I think there needs to be a way where the SAT team and the cases SAT gets, um, we could be more transparent with the cases and have everybody kind of know what's going on um, and collaborate on a case. I don't think um, there's a case that shouldn't have everybody, meaning field investigators, collaborate on. Am I making sense? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and as a as a MUFON member, you can actually go on to the MUFON website, and you can actually download and look at all the um, SAT team reports. Um, one in particular case that I really was I thought was really interesting was the December 9th flat flat back in two thousand seventeen. Um, that was the the time that MUFON received seventy six reports within a four hour period of those um, red strings of lights. Do you remember that case? Uh, wh- where did this take place? All across the United States. And I think it even went up into Canada. Um, and what the news reported it being was the um, 17 C-17 jets flying across the country on some special project. Um, but what was interesting um the SAT team actually, um, Bob Spearing wrote a, uh, I think it was a 93-page report on that actual case. So again, like I said, we have a lot of people collaborating on this on this case. And what was found was not only were there 17 C-17 jets that were flying across the country, but radar showed that there were other other anomalies flying along with these at the same time. So there are some unknowns. Um, to that case. And I think a lot of people thought that December 9th flap was just kind of like, oh, we know what it is, case closed. But SAP team kind of drug up that that's not the case. There was something else going on with that case. So, um, you know, and like I said, once those are um, investigated, we do put the reports out there so people can see and members can see um, actually what was found out. Is there a specific case or specific kind of case that to you is your favorite one to work on? Well, like I said, for me personally, I spend a lot of time and my favorite thing to do is to go to archives and study. Dave Marler opens up his archives down in New Mexico. I've went a couple times there and have spent hours digging through his files and his enormous piles of research. So for me, the Elbert County and the ranch um, case, which although it's not a MUFON case technically, because I've never reported it to MUFON, um, I do spend a lot of my time researching that particular case. Um, but something, I my favorite MUFON cases that I like, and a lot of people don't realize that some of the best cases are daytime sightings. A lot of people think UFO sightings are often just witnessed at night in the dark skies. But some of my best MUFON cases have been actual daytime sightings. Um, so I like those because, you know, you, you can observe better. They were close, close encounter, just right above the treetop type cases. One in particular, um, this woman was driving home from work and she sees this big, white, bright light in the sky Um, She pulls over, she's watching this thing hover, kind of move to the left, move to the right, hover. And she's like trying to figure out, you know, what is this thing I'm observing? And then all of a sudden two 
jets come flying in towards it, which she's never seen. She said they were so low she could just see the bottom clearly. And as these jets move in towards this bright light, the thing, she said it was like a special movie effect. It just dissipated. And one of the jets took off uh, to the east. One took off to the west. And, uh, yeah, so that's one of my favorite cases um, that I've investigated through MUFON. See, with the latest developments that we've had with the Pentagon Special Task Force on investigating UFOs, the one military branch that has kept its mouth shut is the Air Force. And the Air Force, like people are always commentating with either the um, the helicopters or the jets that are dispatched. Like people are seeing this all over the place. So the Air Force is very much aware of this situation. They probably have a lot more information than the Navy does. And who knows how much the Pentagon knows about the affairs of the Air Force. But that is a major problem when they're keeping their mouth shut while the rest of the military branch is trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Uh, I, I think I think that's messed up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Air Force involvement, I mean, I think they became the Air Force back in 1947, right after the Roswell event. And I believe they had their hands in UFOs since that time. And in fact, in the 1975-1978 case, you know, in Elbert County and elsewhere, I mean, the Air Force was definitely involved. I have documentation on that from the WAS, um, Sheriff Waugh, and not only Air Force, but NORAD as well. Yeah, and I think how many pilots, there's just a handful that have stepped forward so far to describe them chasing UFOs, but they're always chasing UFOs. So there's tons of other pilots out there who've had encounters or have been dispatched to intercept that are keeping their mouth shut. I don't know if it's a you know uh, non-disclosure agreement or whatever contract they signed, but it's insane. I think they should step forward and relieve you know themselves of that information or that secret because i think it is interlinked it's only the navy speaking up but um they're the ones having the the issue that they don't know what the hell these things are where i think the air force mm-hmm. yeah and who knows i i think a lot of sightings might be related to their experiments it some of them might be legitimately unknowns and it's the unknowns that scare the crap out of me because it's not another country. It's not like another country could go over the United States that easily. It's the most militarized country in the world. And the radar systems that you guys have down there is insane. Anything could be picked up. And yet this technology just. Right. And it, and it makes you wonder too, that, I mean, maybe a lot of these things we are seeing are, you know, black project air force and they really can't disclose cause they'd be given away you know, the United States secrets. And I understand the need for keeping secrets and not, you know, exposing to the world what capabilities the Air Force has. So, you know, there's that part of it too. Hey guys, Jason here. Are you digging the podcast? Well, if you haven't done so, hit that subscription button and keep up with all the latest developments and lessons from the best experts in the field. Are you paying attention? And that's something that scared me as well. Um, I don't know if you saw the reports out of Colorado this year of all these unusual drone sightings. 
um, that were happening out in Northeast Colorado. And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking why, I mean, they had the police out there. I'm thinking with our military, why can't they figure this thing out? <laughs> like, which scares me. They don't know who's flying all these drones around out here. Why is that? Is that military related? Is that the air force, you know, uh, experimenting with these big swarms of drones that they're, they're letting loose to kind of, uh, mess with radar tracking and that. So, yeah, I, I find it kind of frightening as well that things could be flying around in our airspace that we can't identify. One thing that I did want to ask you, because you have gone through all these different steps, is how what recommendations would you recommend to me and the listener on how to develop as an investigator and how to further your progress in ufology? Well, I guess my advice would be it's so easy to get... Um, swept into the rabbit hole, which is ufology. There are so many subtopics um, to this phenomenon. Um, you know, and, and as you well know, there's the nuts and bolts side, scientific side, which is really important. And then it kind of can get into the paranormal side, which is also important to me. And I haven't been able to separate the two. I believe that they're strongly connected to one another. But I guess my advice would be to kind of pick pick a lane, <laughs> pick an interest, because if you go off and you read 100, 200 books, and I recommend reading, absolutely, but it's so important to stay grounded in what you're doing and to stay focused on, for me, what keeps me focused is the Elbert County Ranch. And yes, there's a lot of high strangeness there. Um, but as far as investigating goes, um, I would pick something you're really interested in um, just like Bob Spearing, he loves the orange orbs and he's made that kind of his specialty. Dave Marler has chosen triangles and he's really delved deep into the triangle phenomenon. And, and that would be my advice to any new field investigators out there is to really find a passion that, that keeps you grounded and motivated and really choose that. Otherwise, you just find yourself getting overwhelmed and going off into every which direction, you know? So that would be my advice. Good advice indeed. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a, an emergency with a star team? Ever had to be displaced out of just right away you need to leave? Um, the best star team case that I had um, was with, I teamed up with a second field investigator who is no longer an active field investigator. He had to retire, but his name was Jack. And uh, Jack and I got a star team case and we kind of deployed right out to um, Colorado Springs. Uh, a gentleman who was in the military had moved out here from another state back east and they had a sighting. So we quickly went out so we can separate the witnesses I interviewed the wife, he interviewed the husband, and it turns out that actually Linda Moulton Howe took hold of this case, and the witness had claimed um, to be downloaded with, um, you know, zeros and ones and had these messages, and we, we went over and did um, readings on his pickup truck and, you know, did... Um, a medical examination of him because he claimed to have scars and this. Well, long story short, um, he claimed to have gotten a message from the ETs and no, nothing against Linda Moulton Howe. I think she's wonderful. I highly respect her. However, <laughs> um, our investigation kind of um, didn't go along with what her conclusions were because we were able to find proof that what they had witnessed whether it was a reentry vehicle. So 
And this particular witness basically stated, I, I'm going to get famous off of this case. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah, that's yeah. an indication so, right there. So, so I was I was like in fighting mode, like put up your dukes. Like, this isn't true. This isn't true. This isn't what we found. And, and Doug Wilson was like, Katie, Katie, you know, calm down. Pick your battles. Just let it go. <laughs> and so so you have to really, really do the research yourself. You, That's another piece of advice I'd give to all the FIs is to you – only you know your truth, right? So it's you, not that I'm saying you can't believe everything everybody puts out there, but really you need to do your own checking, fact checking and do your own research. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was and actually go to the source, go to the source. Yeah. We were talking, I uh, had a guest on uh, Jason Kerrigan from, he's a chief uh, mm-hmm. national chief investigator here in Canada. And he was mentioning how, the reputation in the community is very important that if you do shoddy work or you're known to just accept, you know, and I can understand that because mm-hmm. there's so many traps and pitfalls in ufology. People come up with hoaxes all the time that God damn, I'm afraid to admit that I've fallen for mm-hmm. more than my fair share only to find out, you know, that they were fake. And it, doesn't break my heart it just lets me down that so many people are spending or investing their interest into creating this nonsense uh and that detracts us from actual good cases because it focuses on you know our attention is Mm -hmm. focused on this one uh and i hate that i I really do i've seen yeah i have like flooded facebook pages and everything's a ufo you know, when you clearly could tell it's, you know, a, a balloon or it's a, an airplane and everybody sees, you know, even a flare of a camera. Uh, I've received a few of those cases with MUFON and, you know, people like, oh, you know, it's I, I felt like it was connecting with me. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lens flare. There was nothing yeah. there. But I think dealing with the human psyche is another thing that I, I've, I've heard from other uh, ufologists and investigators that you have to always factor that in right? How somebody feels emotion is all subjective. Have you had any experience with that where just conflict, like I know you mentioned this gentleman was saying we're going to get famous from this, but do you find that there's a common conflict between you and some of the people you investigate? What I, what I find with most of my investigations, first of all, I'd like to say there's nothing more important out there than the witness. Um, so I think it's so important to contact and, and, you know, talk, see them in person if you can, if not, talk, at least talk to them over the phone. Um, I find that I would say upwards of 90% of people have been very honest and genuine. And most of the times, if it is a lens player or something like that, that it's just, they don't know about it. They, you know, and a lot of the times people are happy when you have, oh, you, you know, you saw the Starlink satellites, here's some information about those in Elon Musk. And they're like, oh, thank you so much. You know, it was incredible what I saw or, you know, give them, you know, the information about, you know, camera flares and lens flares and things like that. Every now and again, though, maybe 10% of the time you will get a hoaxer or you'll get somebody who is just so absolutely set in stone that nope, nope, that was a UFO. I know it was a UFO. I, I, like you said, I had mental telepathy with this thing and you're like, well, I know this is a lens flare. Um, but how I handle that is you just be very polite and say, well, this is what my investigation shows, you know, thank you so much for your report, you know, keep your eyes to the sky or something like that. And, and always be respect, be respectful 
um, of the witness and um, close it out. Because after all, our jobs as field investigators is to get that information into the case management system to the best of our ability to, as to what it is. It's not really to satisfy the witness all the time. But I do try to give them conclusions of what my cases were. And most of the time, 90%, people are very happy to hear what, you know, oh, it was a bug in my my camera or something like that. So, but you do have those that are a little stubborn and you just smile and move on. <laughs> yeah. I haven't had one that bounced back on me yet. That was a, like, you know, objecting to my uh, investigations, but I'm sure that's bound mm -hmm. to happen. So it's just like anything else. It's a uh, uh, trial mm -hmm. by fire. Uh, there's no way around it. Uh, I was curious if you personally had a case that either I wouldn't say haunts you, but like a case that you would deem your favorite one. Um, within MUFON? Within any case. Is there one that you particularly love above all the other ones that you've done? Well, um, when I went to Laramie, Wyoming to pull the files from the Clearview Ranch or the Elbert County Ranch, there were some sketches of an ET being in there. And it was something I had never seen before. I didn't... Um, put it on the internet. I really didn't share it with very many people, kept it in my back pocket to see if I could see anybody else who had seen something similar to this ET. And um, so Colorado MUFON, we have our monthly meetings the second Saturday of every month. And um, at that time I was guest speaker coordinator and I had uh, arranged for a guest speaker to come speak. His name's Sean Bartok and he wrote a book called Flashbacks. And so I'm sitting in the third row watching his presentation and he's talking about a ranch that they had in, in the book. It's reported as being in Castle Rock, Colorado, which is still very close to Elbert County, Colorado, Colorado. And um, all of a sudden on the screen are sketches that he made of this ET being that they saw out on that ranch. And I was, my mouth just dropped. I was like, holy cow. It was as best of a match as you can get to the being that was seen in Elbert County. So every time I doubt like, oh, there's nothing to this phenomenon. I'm not sure. Maybe they're all our military craft. I remember those two sketches and I'm like, nope, nope. There's something to this phenomenon because there's no way. Not only did I find out this branch that, in the book is in Castle Rock is actually closer to Elbert County than what the book said, because he, he has, you know, changed the name and the location for the privacy of the people that own this property. So that's sort of my favorite case. That's the case that keeps me investigating. And that's the case that keeps me going and believing that there's more to this phenomenon. Well, now you got to tell me what this thing looks like. <laughs> well, <laughs> it has, um, really heavy, um, like brow wrinkles, like little man wrinkles, almond shaped eyes. But the interesting thing is it had these tubes. Okay. Tubes in the neck. So there were tubes that could separate in the neck and then tubes on the side. Um, and, um, I will, I'm not sure if those pictures are up on my website or not, but anyway, they're very similar down to the little little wrinkles around the mouth and everything. It's just really interesting. Well, do we think it's a different variation of grays? 
possibly. Um, it's funny. I was um, in line at the grocery store and, you know, you're standing there and you're looking at the different magazines and there happened to be a magazine uh, on uh, popular science. And on the cover, it was a big article they did on artificial intelligence, AI. And they had this picture of this sort of man machine and it had these tubes in the neck and tubes around. And I'm like, holy cow, it like just hit me. Oh my gosh, I wonder if what they were seeing was like an AI, you know, with with these tubes. Oh. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, but on their ranch, like, are you saying like, you think it might be human made or do you think it might be, I, you know, somebody else's technology? Well, my, my feeling is if, you know, what would we do if we're going to go visit a different planet? We would send AI, right? Um, yeah, yeah some droid. So yeah. I think that what they experienced on these ranches out here in the mid to late 70s might have been some form of AI. Even the greys have been speculated to be possibly AI or genetic, biogenetically engineered entities. Because uh, even... Was right. it uh, Bob Lazar was describing how these things had, you know, there's no lunchroom, there's no fridge, there's no toilets. They could just be inside the craft mm-hmm. and who knows how long, you know, they're in there for, but it doesn't seem to be any bowel movements or anything that they need like we do. Uh, oxygen maybe, but uh, right. so far, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, it is. And not only that, but there are other like other phenomenon that happened out at that ranch. You had these weird black boxes. Um, what are those? You had the uh, humming sounds that were really prevalent back in those those years, the humming sounds or the sounds of bees. What is that? It's very mechanical sound. You'd have these big bangs under the ground that almost sounded mechanical. There was a lot of like that kind of AI mechanical feel to a lot of these reports. Is that all connected to that? I don't know. I don't know. And I want not to go back to the beginning, but you had mentioned um, the cattle mutilations and I just wanted to share with your listeners one quick story. So I, I drove to Wyoming to interview another young lady who grew up in this small town and she she told me a story that was just fascinating. So her, well, a couple, but the one, after she graduated from high school, she got married right away and they bought some property out in Elbert County of their own. It's way off the main road. Her husband <clears throat> was out um, on horseback checking his cattle and his calves. Well, he came across a, a calf about a mile from the house, she said, and it was down on the ground with a perfectly cut square with the skin, the, the skin removed. So it was like just the, like the fur was removed, but the skin was there and it was a square cut. And he was like, Oh my gosh, you know, the calf is down. He gets on the horse, rides back to the house. They get in the pickup truck and drive back. By the time he did that, the calf had been completely mutilated. Um, and what's cool is she sent me the pictures of the, she, she, she dug out the pictures of the calf all these years later and the, it had a perfectly round cauterized, um, circle where that square cut had been. All the organs was removed, the, the blood, um, the ear I think was gone, the eye, complete calf mutilation. And the, she said she was so spooked and freaked out about it. She felt it was something evil. She, um, she'll never forget this, her and her husband, there were no, 
Um, there were no like wind blown. So it wasn't a helicopter. They would have heard a helicopter. There was no tire tracks. There were no marks around it. And this happened in a short period of time. So to me, that report of hers at that little calf is I was talking incredible. to uh, Chuck Zakowski a couple of episodes back, and mm-hmm. he was mentioning one of the farmers trying to stake out at night who was killing his his cattle. And he was on an ATV with a shotgun and a, a flashlight, and he saw a gray. It was a gray. He thought it was a person, wow. but it was a gray. And the minute he flashed the flashlight on it, he dropped the shotgun and just ran. Uh, so I thought, oh, that's cool. So they're on the ground before the mutilations. Like, and I often think mm-hmm. that do they come down? Do that? You're mentioning the square. Is that how you know they proned the cow, uh, prevented from moving? Maybe that square is how they originally yes, just drain it from the blood. So when they do their other shit, it is it. You know, it's not a messy job. Uh, it, it that's weird. That phenomenon is so weird. Yeah. And it's not just cow. It was horse, you know, and sheep and, and other animals. And there's so many reports of that, of, you know, somebody, you know, the dogs won't bark. They'll be right. The horse will be right outside the kitchen window. And the next morning it's mutilated. The dog doesn't bark. They don't hear anything. They don't hear copters. How is that happening? Not only that, but in the 1970s to night, you know, late 80, they had the ranchers, they had rewards to catch these people. So you had everybody that, that they were hyper vigilant, like Chuck said, with their rifles ready to go to catch these perpetrators who's killing my cattle. So people were actively looking for these people doing this, these, you know, at, at the time they thought they were religious cults and they're looking for these people because they want the $10,000 reward or whatever, and they weren't able to catch anybody. So that says something right there too. Absolutely. And that also brings us to the the other mystery is are the Bigfoot sightings related to UFOs. I think there's so many cases and reports dating back to the early 70s that um, link the two together. I don't think they all are, but I think there is a component to the Bigfoot sightings that correspond with UFO sightings. I, I don't think that can be denied. I think it ebbs and flows. For me personally, um, it was connected to the Albert County Ranch. We had Bigfoot sightings out there along with the bright lights and the UFO encounters. So they were linked for me personally. So that's why I tend to kind of lean towards there's something to that. Um, But, you know, I I know it's a theory that's been around for a long time in the UFO world. (laughs) So... Okay, well, the MARS program, which stands for MUFON Archive Research and Reporting System, uh, it kind of started with um, the idea of digitizing all the Pandora files or the Pandora Project. Now, the Pandora Project was started back in 2006 by James Carrion. Uh, It got worked into a a team with Clifford Clift, Debbie Ziegelmeyer, which is Chuck Zukowski's sister, by the way. And they went through, um, there's over 10,000 files in the Pandora project. And Debbie and Clifford and a, a few other people went through and they named and categorized all these old files. Um, then that kind of got 
put on the back burner for a while. And then in early 2017, Ken St. John came in. He says, oh, we need to create a document storage system to house all these um, digitized old files that used to be on paper. Um, so then that's how the Mars team was created because we needed a team of people that would go through and redact all the personal and private sensitive information that were in these files. Now, when I say there's 10,000 files, each file contains anywhere from one page to upwards to 400 pages. And what's crazy about this is each one of these files, every word needs to be read and redacted because anytime a name is mentioned, somebody's place of employment, where they went to school, something derogatory that we really don't want in there, anything medical or personal, all this information has to be removed from these reports before we can put them out for investigators or the public to, to look at and to use for research. So there's a team of 15 people on the Mars team. Um, we are down to only 600 files now after three years. It's taken us this long to get down to 600 files. And not only are they redacted, but we've categorized them. So within the Pandora system, we have newspaper articles, magazine articles, um, tons of reports, personal letters, you name it, it's in there. So uh, when this project is complete, we'll have a good idea how many newspaper articles we have in the system. Um, we actually had four Canadians on the team, two Two have had to leave because of personal reasons, but we have Jerry out of Ontario and Peter out of Saskatchewan. And um, so Go Canada, or I always said my Mars Team Canada team. Um, Merv and Mike were in there too from Ontario, but like I said, they had to um, leave the team for a while. And it's just, a, I have just a wonderful team of people. Debbie Ziegelmeyer's on the team right now. Chuck's sister, she is like a go-getter in there. Um, and Robert Bob Spearing's on the team as well as so many others that are just super great. And not only do they have to be read once, but we have them read twice. So it goes through a process where one person on the team will go through and redact the information. Then it'll get put in a queue. And then a second person on the team will go back and reread it and make sure nothing was overlooked. So it's a tedious, tedious process. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you, um, I was just working, um, doing some redactions yesterday. And the fun thing about the Mars team is, boy, do you come across some really interesting cases. Uh, I just read one yesterday that was 24 pages long on a report of a UFO landing and that somebody with binoculars saw this UFO on the ground. It was being repaired by a crew. There were two UFOs. The one that was down, another one came in. They were putting something like up underneath, like a cylinder in the bottom underneath of this disc-shaped object. And then once, and she watched this thing for four hours. And at five, like four o'clock in the morning, I think it was, they finally got it repaired and they both just shot straight up. This was reported in November 1964 in, oh, where was it? It was in... Um, it was in New York. This one was in New York. Um, and then within the report that I was reading, they talked about similar cases that were like UFO landings with reported crews. Um, one was in 1950 in France. One was in 1966 in Oklahoma. And one actually in Ontario, Canada in 1967, a similar report. So it's, it's reports and cases like that that you get to read 
um, and redact. And I'm like, holy cow, that's so interesting, you know. publicly declaring their their interest in UFOs again and even an article that came out here in Canada from the Globe and Mail uh, the title was the United States deem UFOs a national security threat why is Canada not taking it as seriously and he does bring very good valid points of events that have taken place in Canada in recent years that we should equally be as invested in this as let's say your country is and same thing with the European countries. And I, I think once all the countries sort of start waking up to like, maybe we should pull our efforts together. Um, maybe they could look back at like some of the stuff that you did with, with the Mars team, uh, even the MUFON database stuff that maybe could be helpful. And that's really what MUFON's all about. Just getting the, the, the information, you know, just recording everything in case there's any relation in the future that we could start seeing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, MUFON has over, what, 100,000 cases, and we continue to, you know, collect cases day after day after day. And I think it's the the priorities have to shift. I think we no longer have to kind of prove to the world that this phenomenon is taking place. I think, you know, to the Stars Academy and the Navy coming out has sort of said, okay, there's something to this phenomenon. Now we need to take and have some sort of with the technology we have and computers, there has got to be a way that, you know, just like within Mars, a lot of these newspaper articles and documents are searchable for keywords and information. Um, it gets a little tricky when it's manuscript. You know, you have the, the even as redactors, we're like, what does this say? Because <laughs> the handwriting gets kind of hard to read. But there needs to be just, a, a, you know, a system where just like, hey, Siri, you know, um, how many orbs were there in the United States? And an answer, all this data can be searched, you know, from around the world, just a huge pile and maybe then we can start getting answers. I think where it gets convoluted is, um, you know, you can search orbs, but just like we talked about the phenomenon with orbs, not only do you need to learn about how many, let's say you say how many orange orbs were there reported in the United States in 2019, you get an answer. But then when it, as an investigator and a researcher, what gets hard is then there's so many other things, how many of them made a sound, how many of them were connected to cattle mutilations, how many of them, you know, had instant acceleration, or maybe the five observables, you know, the how many could cloak, how many went in water. I mean, so it gets so, there's so many questions that need to be answered with any report that you see. It's not just like one thing. There's so many variables to it that need to be really studied and analyzed. One last question before I let okay. you go. Uh, do you have a to-go kit? And if you do, what are the pieces of equipment that you find absolutely uh, important in any of your field investigations? Well, my little grab bag. <laughs> I actually, I actually bought the MUFON <laughs> duffel bag. I'm such a dork. <laughs> I sewed my patches on it. But uh, <laughs> hey, you, you wear proudly, right? I do. You... I even have my dorky little jacket and everything. Um, but uh, 
you know, safety first always. So you have safety gloves and booties and things like that. Um, I have my K2 meter in there. And um, I know a lot of these things you could do on apps on your phone. I find actually having the actual equipment is better than using the apps. Um, I don't know why, but I, I trust apps a little less than actually having <laughs> measuring tape, you know, I agree. measuring tapes and the actual yeah. Geiger counters. And I have actual little um, chain of custody bags, a little tip for your listeners. There's a lot of chain of custody forensic websites that will give you free samples. If you, you know, just give them your email, say, I want with like a free sample of your, um, your chain of custody bags and they'll send you a assortment of bags and it's free, no charge to you. Um, so I've collected that for soil samples or any other type of samples I may need. Um, I haven't, to be honest, had to use it very often, but I have a couple of times. Um, so it's nice to have, um, night vision goggles. Some of them are quite expensive, but, um, those are really fun toys to have. Um, you know, a good camera. I mean, you have your digital camera, but I also have the old fashioned camera that I like to take out. Let's say you get called to a cattle mutilation site or something. It's nice to have an actual good camera. So, you know, yeah, I do have one. I don't use it very often, but it's nice to have if you do need it. So I recommend having one. Yeah, I'd like to um, maybe get you and uh, Chuck Zakowski on and just do like a, a step by step of what to do if you're called out to a cattle mutilation, because there are steps that, that, that are required. Chuck touched, touch, uh, he touched a bit on it uh, previously, but I, I wanted more like a, a comprehensive lesson from the experts mm -hmm. on what should be done, like from first finding out about it, the report, how to talk to the owners of the ranch or the farm. Uh, how? Because where I live, mm -hmm. I mean, it's farm country. There's a lot of farms, so it's bound to happen, <laughs> maybe. As long as the cops let me know. I mean, I, I hope so bad. It's so bad of me to wish this, but I want one. I just want one case. Uh, just to say that I've actually done a cattle mutilation or animal mutilation. And, and, it's, and what, I was going to say what you'll find, too, in a lot of these smaller towns, at least it's been my experience, that they don't report it very often. That I think my advice to you would be, to go into these smaller towns, these ranch towns, and, you know, go into the local restaurant and talk to some of the local people and be a resource that they can trust. Because a lot of times, you know, especially now, because I was like, are these happening anymore? And what I have found is, yes, they are happening. Ranchers are not reporting them because they know nothing comes of it. They don't get reimbursed for the lost cattle. Uh, you know, they don't get answers. They haven't gotten answers in decades. What's going to change now, right? So a lot of the times these don't go reported. So that would be my advice to you is to go into these, you know, these smaller towns and and go into the local, you know, hey, I'm here. If, if this should happen, I'd love to be part of the investigation. Now, I want to mention to the audience as well that Katie is working on a book. Uh, and Katie, you're mentioning that you're almost done. Uh, the editing process, right? Yep. That's absolutely right. It's in the final stages of being edited. And uh, like I mentioned to you before the show, I don't know when the book release, release will be. I might wait, want to wait till after the election. The world's kind of 
going a little crazy right now. I want to wait for things to settle down. Hopefully they do. But the book is called Letters of Love and Light. And it's four decades of UFO encounters, experiences, and sightings shared with ufologist R. Leo Sprinkle, PhD. And this book is a culmination of years of research of going back and forth to the archives in Laramie and going through Dr. Leo Sprinkle's personal collection. Dr. Leo Sprinkle was a psychologist and hypnotherapist um, and also a UFO contactee researcher. And he started his research back in 1967. So there were 72 boxes boxes of letters written from people all around the world. And I have um, taken photos of these letters, read them all, categorized them into chapters. So I have, you know, UFO and ET descriptions, hypnosis, um, ET contact and communication, dreams or memories. There's 12 different chapters of really fascinating information. Um, I reached out to many of the letter writers as possible. Unfortunately, a lot of them have, have deceased. But um, it's just been a really passionate project I've been working on for years. So I'm excited for that to come out. Right. That sounds like a book that uh, I definitely will get once, once it's out, let me know. And uh, I okay. will go buy it because that's, especially with the abduction phenomenon, something that I've always been obsessed with. Um, mm-hmm. Since I was a kid, I've always believed in it. And yeah, if there's letters from, you know, experiences that I've never heard of, I would love to yeah. read it. Yeah, that's, that's right up my chapter. alley. Yeah. yeah, there's a whole chapter on abductions. And you could go to my website. It's just my name, katiegraboski.com. And I have a page on there dedicated to the book. And, and so there'll be, um, you know, when it's released, uh, I'll, I'll update the site there too. So he fell within the category of Bud Hopkins and John Mack, uh, kind of in the same field of work. Absolutely. The the man, um, he's still alive. He's retired. Um, he is just, like you said, he's so generous of his time. When I first met Leo for the first time, and anybody who knows him will attest to this, but he will just sit down with you for two hours and chit chat with you. Um, you know, he's so generous of his time and spirit. And I just felt compelled to kind of write, write this book for him about him and he's been on board with it and, and is just thrilled that I've, I've done this. So it, it makes me happy that Leo's happy. So yeah. That's great. Cause yeah, you don't want to mess that up. Yeah. His, right. His, his life's work and you're like, ah, well, <laughs> exactly. it's no, kind of like when they do a sequel to a movie you really like, right. Never pans out. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's been an honor to do that for him. Yeah. And Katie, you also have a website. I do. It's katiegraboski.com or you could do UFO, uh, ah, Colorado UFO Paranormal Research is a little subgroup I've started and, and do I do a meetup with that, which kind of addresses MUFON's more nuts and bolts. The Colorado UFO Paranormal Research uh, kind of explores the fringy topics of the phenomenon. <laughs> so, and, and one question, I'm just curious now, how does your family feel about you being the UFO nut in the family? <laughs> well, my oldest son, <laughs> that's what he calls me. Exactly. The UFO net. Um, I have one grandson and he's the father of my grandson. And she, he's like, that's your crazy grandma. <laughs> no, they're all very supportive. Um, they're all supportive of it. And um, they understand the things I went through as a young girl. And I think they're quite interested in it, actually. So, yeah, they're they all have my back. So. Well, that's good to hear. So far, yeah. so far, it's been the same with my family. I get a few raised eyebrows. I've had a family friend pull me aside in a grocery store once I just met her in the bread aisle or something. She pulled me aside. She's like, 
are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And she was just talking about what she was seeing on Facebook. And I was just mentioning all this UFO stuff. And she thought I completely lost it. And she's like, are you okay? Like, of course I'm okay. But I was going to explain to her then and there what was, you know, there's too much to explain. And, and some people are, you know, they're, they're too aged and they've been locked in this pattern of thinking for far too long that changing their minds now is sort of a waste of my time. Right, uh, it's more about the new generation now, right? We grew up with E.T. We grew up with, you know, 1980s movies all about aliens. And mm-hmm. we're very familiar. And we're the people now in Congress. And we're the right. people who are like, dude, I want to know. Right? Absolutely. I, I love the younger crowd coming up. and And it's so interesting because... Um, I, I've had this discussion with my daughter who is just 20 years old now. And I'm like, geez, you know, I talked to y- your generation and they kind of don't seem too interested in this topic. And she goes, well, I think mainly it's because a lot of the younger generation kind of accepts it as like, yeah, they're here. Um, we know that there's something to this. So it, it's not so uh, it's not seen as crazy as it was when I was younger. So I think it's shifting the way it's perceived. Yes, but eventually it's going to lead to philosophy and more questions of like, what are we to them? That's the important part. Mm-hmm. Right, are they absolutely. shepherds? Are they needing something from us? Is there a different, I mean, what's our relation to them? And that's the part that really irks me that I want to know. Because mm-hmm. I mentioned this before, how like, you know, you have a polar bear minding his own business, and all of a sudden there's a helicopter. He gets shot with a tranquilizer dart, right? <laughs> Bunch of guys come out, and they right. start doing stuff to him, and medical exam, they tag him so they could find him again later on. Well, he gets up, and he goes over right. to the other polar bears, and like, holy shit, it was my own business, and this flying thing came down, and it couldn't move, and they were doing all these medical experiments. It's like, it sounds very familiar to the abduction mm-hmm. phenomenon. I'm like, geez, we're... We're like polar bears to them. Like we're nowhere near equal to them. That's funny. Thanks, Jason, for having me on.